godly man like? I thought that would be a good title for Father's Day. And sadly, today we have to ask a more basic question. What is a man? According to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created mankind, which refers to all human beings, and he created them to be male and female. There's a difference biologically, physically, romantically, sexually, and in role distinctions, and in identity. A man biologically has an X and a Y chromosome. Women have XX chromosomes. There sometimes there are disorders, but these are disorders. They're not the norm. Physically, men typically have more body mass and muscle mass, bone mass than women do. It's one of the reasons why it's it's very unfair for men and women to compete in most competitions together. Men also have different and distinguishing sexual organs from women. Again, there are rare genetic abnormalities that uh, certainly uh, create some confusion sometimes, and we care about these individuals who have these difficulties. But it's due to the fall. It's not due to original design. Sexually and romantically, a man is solely to be attracted to a woman, only marry a woman, engage in sexual relations with only a woman, and only in the context of marriage, which is the union of one man and one woman. Regarding the differing roles, I find John Piper's definition to be helpful. And there's a good book called uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He aims to to get to the heart of biblical masculinity and femininity. And regarding manhood, which is what this sermon is about, he says, at the heart of mature masculinity is the sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, to provide, and protect women in ways appropriate to the differing relationships. There are a lot of different relationships that uh, men and women are going to be in, and that will vary from uh, relationship to relationship, but leading, providing, and protecting. And young men, I want to ask you, are you trying now to cultivate and develop that you are a provider, that you are a protector, that you are a leader? That's important for you, no matter how young you are, to begin to think about these things. Regarding the differences of identity... It's clear from Scripture that God's design is for a man, described in all of these previous ways, to identify as a man and to behave in a masculine way. Now, you're probably aware that three different Democratic presidents, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden, have designated June this month as LGBTQ Pride Month. Now, we need to recapture June I would suggest that we call it Biblical Manhood and Womanhood Month. And not just Biblical Manhood and Womanhood Month, but Biblical Manhood and Womanhood Humility Month to counter the pride. 
I'd say biblical because we believe that God's word is absolute truth. And he has lovingly and wisely designed us in the image of God. I say manhood and womanhood because he teaches that he created us male and female. And humility month for many reasons. First, because we submit to God's wise and loving design. And because we recognize that if it were not for the grace of God, we would enter into possibly these same lifestyles and identities. I also say with humility because... I have an adult, unbelieving daughter who identifies as transgender. And I know that some of you have loved ones who are enslaved to these identities and lifestyles. So I empathize with the pain that you feel. And due to its popularity, there is the ever-present pull and the draw into this arena. And we sometimes feel helpless. And we know that we cannot reach them apart from God, the Holy Spirit. So we have the humility of dependence. I also say humility because I know that there are those here, particularly young people who have a real struggle with feelings of same-sex attraction or identity confusion that brings an inner angst and turmoil and pain and temptations to follow the world's solution for this confusion. To you, I want to say that we love you and we urge you to talk to a parent or a counselor, a discipler, a friend, a pastor. You need to have biblical help for your trial and we can help. There is hope. So what I want to say in introduction as we shift to this passage that it's important for us to take a stand in all of our relationships. Don't be afraid. There's an onslaught coming at you and it may get worse and worse. It may end up being pride year. But we cannot be forced into silence over this. This is the gospel This is the truth of God's word. So with that said, do we know what a man is? Okay. Now we can talk about what is a godly man like. And this is my challenge to you as fathers, but not just fathers. All men, all young men, even children who are male. In verse, in chapter 1, uh, chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verse 12, there's one sentence. And in this one sentence, it gives us characteristics, five characteristics of the example of a godly man. Paul writes to Timothy, his son in the faith, and he says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. In the book of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is writing to a a young man, Timothy. It's someone who he calls my true son in the faith. Apparently he has won him to Christ. Timothy is an an elder in Ephesus. Paul has left him there and he's writing to give him instructions. And he's telling him, fight the good fight of faith. 
He teaches them to pray, to teach, to appoint godly elders, to be qualified to shepherd the flock with him, and to appoint deacons to serve as ministers of mercy. And to, he tells him, you've got to be absorbed with the word and in sound doctrine. He tells him to discipline himself to be godly. He teaches him to conduct himself properly in the household of God, the, the church setting. He gives him a lot of responsibilities and he covers instructions for women, for men, for widows, and for elders. And in the midst of this, Paul says in verse 11 of chapter 4, prescribe and teach these things. So he's supposed to take all of this truth and prescribe it and teach it to the church. The problem is, is that Timothy is a younger man. The word that's translated youthfulness don't let anyone look down upon your youthfulness, is used in this culture to refer to a man who was not 40 yet. So up until he's 40, he would still be considered youthful. A lot of you are happy about that, right? <laughs> Based upon early church history and the fact that 1 Timothy is written about 14 years after Paul picked up Timothy on his second missionary journey... It's estimated that Timothy was in his mid to late 30s. Paul tells him, let no one look down on your youthfulness. The problem is that older people have a habit of looking down upon younger people as if they don't know anything. Or at least they know less. And sometimes that's true. They might say, well, he hasn't lived life. He, he doesn't have the uh, experience in areas of marriage and problems that arise in the church. He hasn't fi finished raising his children yet. He, he hasn't acquired as much knowledge and wisdom as these older people have. It's true that there is great value. The scriptures tell us that older, wiser men have accumulated many times a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge, a lot of wisdom. But Timothy was not to let them look down upon him so as to not listen to the teaching that Paul has given him to teach to them. Now Paul doesn't tell Timothy to do this by saying, you don't disrespect me. Or in any selfish way or any uh, angry way of asserting himself. He doesn't tell him to, to do it that way. He says rather to do it this way. To be an example, the way you gain respect and a hearing with older people, younger men, he says, and rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Now, here at Riverbend, we have a, a system of government we believe is biblical called eldership, biblical eldership. We believe that all of our elders are qualified pastors, overseers, or elders, three terms that mean essentially the same thing, but come at it from a different angle. We have nine elders, and I'm going to give out their ages. You have to guess the names. But <clears throat> their ages are 75, 74, 67, 58, 57, 56, 49, 42, and one younger man, 39. Not quite 40 yet, so he gets the title. There could easily be a tendency for the older elders to look to the, at the younger elders as inexperienced, not knowledgeable, 
in practical wisdom. They could easily be seen as the junior elders. And we should stress that there is a great deal to be said for the life and ministry experience of the older guys. And the younger guys should want to glean from them. But I can tell you that there's mutual respect among our elders. The younger ones have done exactly what Paul tells Timothy to do, and that is they have been examples in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. But this is not just for elders. This is what all men should be examples of. You should be an example in your speech and in your conduct and in your faith and in your love and in your purity. All men should be this. Being an example means that you're someone others could pattern their, pattern their lives after. Let me ask you, would you want people to pattern their life after you, men? You should. Now, none of us is the perfect example of Jesus. We can all do well to pattern ourselves after him in all these areas. But he wants us, other men, to be examples that imitate him. Paul said, follow my example as I follow Christ's example in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. <clears throat> and we know that anything good in us is from the grace of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what discipleship is all about. Helping us to grow, one brother or sister leading another to follow Christ, to follow our example as we follow him. Men who are married, I want to ask you, does your wife see you as someone to imitate? Do your children see you as an example? Do your children see you as an example to imitate? What about your friends? What about your co-workers, your neighborhoods? If not, you need to change. And there are five qualities that you need to gain and grow in to be a godly man. First, a godly man is to be an example in his speech. What do people hear from your lips? What, do, what, do your, what does your mouth put forward before everyone who hears you? The words of a man are a serious issue. Jesus said this to the Pharisees. He said, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What you say reveals your heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure, that's in his heart, what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Matthew 10, 34 through 37. God has spoken, hasn't he? And his word is holy and true. And he has given us words about his truth that should be our words. 
Our speech should be designed as God has indicated it should be designed. There are tons of verses about our communication, about our speech. I'm going to stay in Paul's letters to Ephesus and Colossae. This is how your speech should be characterized. First of all, there are four descriptions of bad speech we want to look at. That uh, When we think about our speech and the bad speech, we want to put it off. We want to crucify it. We want to get rid of it. These are, first of all, lying. We should put lying speech away. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Colossians 3, 9 says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. The word that's translated falsehood in Ephesians 4, 25 is the opposite of truth and refers to any kind of lying or deception. Everyone in your life needs to trust what you say. They need to be able to trust what you say. Are you trustworthy? Is your yes, yes, and your no, no? If you say you're going to do it, do you do it? They should not be on guard to, to wonder, to whether, to, to, to wonder whether you're manipulating them, whether they can really trust what you're saying. Do you have things that you're hiding from them? We're also to put off angry and abusive speech. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger and clamor be put away from you. Colossians 3.8 But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech which are from your mouth. Is your wife scared of you? This should never be. It's shameful. Disgusting. Are your children afraid of you? If you go through the house stomping your feet, raising your voice, using foul language, punching walls, throwing toasters, they will be. We should put off unwholesome speech. Ephesians 4, 39, or 29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Let me read that again. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. The word is translated unwholesome can refer to Physically, it's used to refer to things that are rotten, unusable. So morally, it's referring to anything that's bad or evil. He says in Ephesians 5, 4, And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. These words refer to Anything that would be an obscenity or foolish talk, talk that is not appropriate. This kind of speech is shameful and foolish. This would forbid, God, God would 
forbid you from ever telling a dirty joke. No off-color remarks. These have no place in a believer's speech. We should put off all malicious speech and slanderous speech. Ephesians 4.31 says, But now you also put them all aside, anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Slander is speech that denigrates, it reviles, it disrespects another person. How do you talk about people? Should your children imitate how you talk about people? Little minds are hearing. They're noticing. They're seeing. There are, there are all these bad ways that we need to put off. But then we need to put on the good things. Be good examples of speech. In Ephesians 4.25, it also speaks of truth. It says, therefore, laying aside the falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. It's not enough to just give up lying. You also need to be characterized by speaking the truth. Of course, this could involve the truth of God's word. How wonderful that is when the scripture flows from your lips, especially about different situations, when you express wisdom and understanding and knowledge and application of God's word. Do people hear you speaking the truth of Scripture? Do they hear you being vulnerable and confessing your sins? There's no place for anything other than truth from a man of God. Do you say edifying things? We're taught this in Ephesians 4.29. We looked at this before. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but what do you replace it with? But only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Wow, what a, what a change from somebody who has unwholesome words proceeding from their mouth to somebody who is characterized by three things here. Words that are good for edification. <clears throat> That's building up people. You, you say good things about people. You encourage them. You, you exhort them. And it's according to the need of the moment. You're timely with your words. You say the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. And the desire is that it would give grace to those who hear. When you speak God's word, you speak truth. God can use that to actually accomplish his ends in the lives of other people. We should also put on a, a heart that expresses itself through our lips in this way. It should be a kind, tender-hearted, forgiving heart. In Ephesians 4.32, it says, Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. Boy, wouldn't that solve a lot of things just in our relationships? Tender-hearted. You have a heart that's not hard towards people and angry and upset, but it's... It's kind and tender. You see people, you, you, you have an emotional affection for people. Forgiving each other. Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. 
In Colossians 3, 12 and 13, it says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has complained against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That, those verses convey the heart of a person who really cares about people. That's, that's really the core. You know, do you have love in your heart for other people? Do you have a tenderness, a compassion, a, a graciousness? Do you recognize, he talks about forgiveness as you've been forgiven. Do you recognize how gracious and kind and loving, compassionate, merciful God has been towards you? That affects the heart. And it causes us to see that person through those eyes and be forgiving and loving and kind. This kind of a heart also produces thankful speech. Ephesians 5, 4, verse 20, Colossians 3, 17. I'll just read them in a row. It says, And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, those things to put away, but rather giving of thanks. Does thank you flow off your lips very easily? It should. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. I talked to a brother in the hall, and we were just talking about how thankful we are. He says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Do people hear you express thanks? Or are you thankful to somebody else? Are you thankful to your spouse, to your friend, to your co-worker, to your children? You express thank you. Also, our speech should be characterized by wisdom. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Notice that key verse there that governs our teaching and our speaking. It says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. If you saturate your heart and mind with God's word then it will affect your language. It affects your thoughts. It affects your hearts. It, it, it should affect everything. It will. Your lips will pour forth wisdom. So a godly man should be an example to others in his speech. But also, second, a godly man is to be an example in his conduct. Word and deed, this could cover all of life, but we'll see a couple of other emphases in just a moment. But conduct refers to your way of life, your, your behavior, your lifestyle. A Christian should have a radically different behavior than the world. Paul says that this radical change should be expected of Christians. He says in Ephesians 4, through 24, he says... In reference to your former manner of life, 
There's, there's a former way of living. <clears throat> you lay aside the old self. And then he says that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in the righteousness and holiness of truth. There should be a difference, a radical difference. A radical difference from who you were when you came to Christ and now as well, especially if you've been a Christian for very long. There's a simple principle. Jesus asks, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? You don't raise your hand right now, but just think. Are you a Christian? Is Jesus Lord of your life? Do you, do you call him Lord? If he is your Lord... Why do you not do what he says? There are many verses about how our conduct should be. Paul often refers to it as our walk. You're walking down the road. You have a characteristic walk. <clears throat> Paul says this. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He says, if you value, you walk in a manner worthy, you value, it's worth something to you, you're calling to be a Christian, then it should look a certain way. The way a worthy walk should look, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We should want to be people who are seen as humble and gentle, people who are not working on diligently dividing the church and dividing my marriage and dividing my family and causing all kinds of arguments and conflict, but they should be diligent here to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, in verse 32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's the motivation for the walk that you have. Paul likes this theme of walking. And he says this in verses 8 through 10 of Ephesians. He says, <clears throat> chapter 5, Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light, so this is how you can tell if you're walking as children of the light, because the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. I love the summary he gives in verse 10. He says, try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That should be our ultimate question all the time, right? Lord, what is pleasing to you? That's, that's a very helpful evaluative question. Say in your family, you know, should we buy a house? Well, what is pleasing to the Lord? In our situation, with our financial condition, with our size of family, with the economy, all these things. No, ultimately, what is pleasing to the Lord in your dating relationship? 
all kinds of decisions should be run through this grid, this question. <clears throat> Paul goes on in verse 15 through 18. He says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So be careful how you walk. You should walk in love. You should walk in light. You should walk in wisdom. You should walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling you have received. You should walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. These are all different places where Paul speaks of this. <clears throat> Paul also talks about specifically how this should look in parenting. So we, we call on fathers. He says in Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Very clear, very practical advice from Paul right there. Do not exasperate your children. Do not provoke them to anger I found an article this week by Eric Raymond, and it's called How to Exasperate Your Children. And he has many different examples, and I'm just going to read through them, but I, I hope that some of them will catch in your heart. You know, am I doing these things? Fathers sometimes do this. They, they bully their children. Or they show favoritism. They question their salvation every time they mess up if they're a professing Christian. Sometimes they have unclear standards. You ever had a father that, uh, you know, you, you really didn't know what was going to happen if you did this or you did that? You know, what, what should I do? How am I going to live through this? Unexplained discipline. Why am I being disciplined? Inconsistency. Excessive or unreasonable discipline. Disciplining out of anger, humiliating them, never admitting you are wrong, or overprotecting or smothering them. There are many more descriptions in the Bible about what our conduct should look like. But the bottom line is that it ought to be obvious by your behavior that you are a Christian. Let me read you a verse that speaks of this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, you know what that says? By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Whew. Let that sink in for just a moment. Is it obvious that you are a child of God and not a child of the devil? Is it obvious? He says, anyone who does not practice righteousness, practice as a Regular pattern of your life. Nor the one who does not love his brother. You have love as a pattern of life. You're not of God if righteousness and love are not the pattern of your life. Children, let me ask you this. Is it obvious to you... That your parents are Christians. It should be obvious. And if it's not, you need to ask some questions. Mommy, Daddy, you say that you're a Christian. 
What does a Christian look like? How am I to tell? Well, this leads to a third quality. A godly man is to be an example in his love. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Love appears in the middle of these five characteristics. Love is to be the preeminent mark of a Christian. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, and all your strength, all your mind and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They'll know you are Christians by your love. That's what John was saying. What, what's obvious is that you have a pattern of love as characteristic of your life. The goal of Paul's instruction in 1 Timothy 1.5, he tells Timothy, he says, it's instruction that is love from a pure heart. That's the goal of all his instruction, is that you would have love. Back to Ephesians, we see the word love used 14 times. And just a few of these are, first of all, it's, it's used of the love of God toward believers. God has loved you. In love, he predestined you. He brought you into his family, adopting you as children into his family according to the kind intention of his will. God loves you, believer. He's loved you. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Loving Christ ought to be primary in our lives. When Paul finishes the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 4, he says, Grace be with, the, with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. That should be our goal. That should be what we pray for, God to give us the grace, and God give them the grace to love God, to love Jesus with an incorruptible, imperishable, ongoing, stable, consistent love. And Christ's love for us ought to be our motivation for loving others and our, and our model as well. Ephesians 5, 2 says, And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Our love should be like Christ. He gave himself up. We're, we're putting off and we're giving up. We should give up Ourself every day, lay down our lives. In the context of marriage, we see this pattern in Ephesians 5.25. It says, husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a total ongoing self-denial that has to be practiced. It has to be repented of whenever it's not there. And again, I, I speak to you as somebody who is an imperfect father and husband and man and preacher and all this. When I'm preaching hard, when I'm becoming forceful, it's right at me as well. So husbands ought 
to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. In Ephesians 5.33, Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife as himself. Brave question. Does your wife know? Does she know? No! Absolutely no question in her mind does she know that you love her. Let me give you some brave questions to ask. Honey, do you know that I love you? Not, honey, you know I love you. Don't prime the pump. <laughs> Say, do you know that I love you? And if you get past that one, second question is, how do you know I love you? Not, I love you, let me count the ways. No. How do you know I love you? And third, how can I show I love you better? There should be a love not just for our families, but also for the church. Men, there should be in you, Ephesians 1.15, the idea that you have a love for all the saints. Do your children, do your family, do your co-workers, do your people around you in your life, do they know you love the church? And you could ask the same questions for every one of these. Well, how do they know you love the church? How do they know you love all the saints? There should be a tolerance for one another in love, a speaking the truth in love. Fathers, as you're leading this, this family, do, do, does your family, do your children know you love the church? By you, you can show that. How can you show that? By your involvement, by your relationships by your hospitality, by using your giftedness that God has given you to serve in the church, by the priority it has in your money, in your financial giving, by how you talk about the leadership or how you talk about other people in the church. There's just so many ways that it ought to be demonstrated that you love the church. Now let me just... Be clear, you can't do anything that I've just told you. Not in your own strength, not by yourself. And that's why Paul, as he gives all these exhortations and all these directions, he shows that we're dependent, and so he prays. In Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, he prays that for believers, it says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's my prayer for you. I'm going to pray it today for you and people that I think of. 
And you pray for me and you pray for one another because we need to be filled up with all the fullness of God. We need Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith, to, to compel us, to empower us. Paul, he says this in, in five, chapter 5, verse 15, says, Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by every joint, what, that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. It's going to come from Christ. It's going to be mediated through his church that we're going to be able to grow. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You have to be filled with the Spirit to be able to overcome these things. And what does the Spirit produce? It's the Spirit that produces these things, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. We need to approach doing all these things in a spirit of dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And, and that attitude of dependence comes as you believe and embrace the idea that he's going to speak to you through his word. And so you go to his word and you believe that you speak to him through prayer. And he accomplished these things through these means of grace. Number four, God has told us that a godly man is to be an example in his faith. The reference to faith here has to do with your spiritual life. Your words and your behavior and your love are manifestations of a genuine faith. They tell us that it's obvious that you're a Christian, that you have a genuine faith. And faith has two facets. First, faith has to do with believing certain things, certain truths. If you're a Christian, you have come to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who came and lived a perfect life in your place. He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. He ascended into heaven, and now he's the great high priest who makes intercession on our behalf, and he's there to give us grace and help in our times of need, right? And when you are a Christian... You are to grow in the knowledge of God. And so you're to keep on bringing more and more of belief into your life, more and more knowledge and wisdom and discernment and discretion as you study God's word. But there's another aspect of it because believing truth, assenting to knowledge is not enough. It's not genuine faith doesn't just do that. Uh, James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So just believing truth, mental sin is not enough. You also have to have the aspect of faith that has to do with trust and entrusting. You entrust yourself. You, you believe the promises of Christ and you trust him for that. You trust that he says, if you believe in me, I'll give you eternal life. And so you trust him that you have eternal life. We should be growing in both. 
our children, our wives, our family, our friends, our co-workers, our church members, all these people in our lives ought to see two things. That we're growing in knowledge, that we're growing in knowing God. When we have a seminary and a Bible college and DTP and soul care and all these discipleship programs and different classes and all this stuff, it's not because we're we care about being academic, scholarly. It's because we care about Jesus and we want to get to know him better. That's all all of that is. There's so many different facets, so, many, so much different knowledge that we can take in and embrace and live out. So we need to be growing in our knowledge. People are going to be different and have different levels, and that's okay. Nope, not everybody needs to go to these different things. But you need to be growing in your knowledge. Second, you need to grow in your trust. Yes, you come to trust the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, but then you need to live life, right? Are you trusting him through the trials and the persecutions and the difficulties of life? That's a life of faith. So he says, be an example of faith. Be a man or a woman of faith. Finally, fifth, a godly man is to be an example in his purity. Boy, isn't that amazing that he highlights that one area, especially in this idea of this day of Pride Month, right? God's design is for sexual purity. He knows, Paul knows that there is, that is one area that can immediately derail and disqualify Timothy from ministry. We have the example of David in the Old Testament. We see the devastation and the consequences of life that it brought because he fell in sin to adultery and it just his sin compounded and destroyed his life and eventually led to the division of the kingdom. Marriage is to be the only context. And marriage between only a man and a woman is to be the only context for sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. It's a challenge for those of you who are dating. You know, we have all kinds of relational situations and very little advice and instruction about how to go about dating. And people fall into legalism. They fall into license. And... But there's one bottom line. Don't. Don't engage in any sexual activity as a dating couple. You're not married yet. And young men, it is your responsibility to lead to lead that woman and to protect her and to provide for her. And if you have been drifting in, crossing the line, then you need to repent and show her that you're going to be a good husband that's going to do these things. The Bible forbids every category 
And just need to say this before we go. The scriptures are very clear that the, the Bible forbids adultery, premarital sex, prostitution, bestiality, homosexuality, lesbianism, polygamy, rape, incest, lust, and sensuality. It's amazing what God had to specify because people left the true and simple instructions of God as he made them in his own image, male and female, and determined that man would be simply between a man and a woman. Marriage would be that. But we need to go to 1 Corinthians 6, 11. It says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That's the change. We don't look down on them those that are caught and enslaved in these sinful lifestyles and confused identities. We know that they need to be saved just like we do. And we did. In closing, let me give you some good questions, some good discipleship questions. And you could use these in your, um, your marriage, with your children, with somebody you're discipling, small groups, how are you doing in your speech? Just talk to somebody about, you know, how are you doing in your speech? Are you honoring God? Are you staying away from profanity? Are you building up people? These are things to practice. How's your behavior? Are you selfish? Are you kind? Are you tenderhearted, compassionate? Or are you angry? How's your love? Do you love God? Do you love your neighbor? How do people know? Be honest with people. Say, you know, say to a friend, you're a single person, you don't have a family, you know, just ask, ask a friend, you know. These are vulnerable questions, but they're needed. Do you see me as loving? What are some characteristics about me that you think need to be changed? How's your faith? Are you, are you growing in your knowledge? I'm challenging you today. Are you, gonna, are you growing in your knowledge of the Word and of the Lord? How's your faith? Are you persevering? Are you weathering the storms? Are you falling into anxiety and worry? There needs to be some growth there, right? And then finally, how's your, how's your purity? How's your purity? Let me just end with some hope. For the believer, Paul says this in Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? And your great high priest is available to give you grace and help in your time of need. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this one verse that you had Paul give to Timothy, it's easy to read over fast, but we needed to hear it. We need to take your word and meditate upon it. And I pray, Lord, that this perusal, this study of it would cause us, Lord, to change. That your spirit would attend to what we've heard and that we would be convicted, challenged, but we would be graced 
to find repentance and faith and persevere and grow. And Lord, we pray for marriages, that you would heal marriages, that you would protect marriages. Pray that you would cause fathers and husbands to to grow in demonstrating love and godliness to their families. And we pray for young men, even little boys here today, that they would would have these principles in their minds. And they would ask questions and they would look for a, a father to be an example. Those that have fathers, we know that sometimes that's missing, but give them fathers in the faith, Lord. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.